Welcome to the Diversity Church Podcast. This is Pastor Jonathan Ember. We hope that you would just take a moment and listen and receive the Word of God. We know that one word from the Lord can change your life. And so we hope that this message will bless you and transform you in Jesus' name. introduce to you Dr. Philip Richardson. All right, last week you heard from them in relation to the mission that God has them on in One Mission Society, Uh, but this week we get to hear him in a different light. He's going to be sharing uh, a parable with us that I asked him to share because I believe this parable is a little bit hard to understand. So we brought a doctor into the house to break down the word of God for us today. Um, He has a book that he gave me that I've just been able to kind of peek at a little bit. I definitely want to read it. This is not for the faint of heart in theology because it's called The Temple of the Living God. And the subtitle or the subcaption of this says the influence of Hellenistic philosophy on Paul's figurative temple language applied to the Corinthians. <laughs> Can't wait, right? It's a bestseller. Yeah, it's a bestseller. And so I just wanted you to understand the mind that is going to be sharing with us the word of God today. And so that was the book uh, that he wrote, uh, Philip Richardson. And so um, this is who we have in the house today. One of our very own members who teaches theology to um, Bible students all over the world. Let's give it up for Philip Richardson as he shares the word of God. Thank you. So let's get that book into the New York Times bestsellers list. We can do it. Well, anyway, good morning, Diversity Church. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you today. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed a lack of diversity among our preachers. Have you noticed that? Maybe it's just me, but have you noticed that all our preachers are Americans? It's so weird, isn't it? Do you notice that? And you may have noticed, uh, also observed some common traits that all our preachers have. They're passionate, (coughs) they're exuberant, they're loud, they're emotional, they're high energy. Now maybe, just maybe, you've been thinking to yourself, if only we could just occasionally have someone whose preaching is calm, (laughs) who is restrained, quiet, unemotional, low energy, or to put it more succinctly in just one word, British. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much uh, to Pastor Jonathan for inviting me to share today. It's a great privilege and honor to be with you and to have this opportunity to preach on the next message in our series, Storytime with Jesus. So let's read the passage together that we're going to look at today, which is from Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. So this should be coming up, there you go, on our screens. So I'll just read this to you. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. (coughs) Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. 
The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, if you notice at the start of this passage, our story does not begin, the kingdom of heaven is like, as many other parables do. And the stories that we're looking at are what we call the parables from the Gospels taught by Jesus. But it begins with the kingdom of heaven will be like. So right from the start, Jesus is signaling that this is about what will happen in the future. It's about coming judgment. It's about the return of Jesus. And we get a number of parables like this. This is the one that we're looking at in our series. Well, firstly, let's just uh, pinpoint some details of the stories that we've ju- the story we just read. Just have a refresher. So there are ten virgins. What we mean by that really are it's a bit like bridesmaids that we would have at our modern wedding. They're divided into two groups. Half of them are wise. Half are foolish. All ten of them took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, weddings in Jesus' day probably involved a whole week of events, not just one day or half a day like a Western wedding. And the climax would be a torch-lit procession from the bride's house to the bridegroom's home at night, ending in a great wedding feast at his home. The... um, I'm sorry, all the virgins had their lamps at the ready to light the way, but only five of them carried the extra oil uh, in jars to relight the lamps if they went out. Then, and this is the crucial part of the story, the bridegroom was delayed. It's late, it's dark, it's the end of a busy day of preparations and All the virgins fell asleep, not just the foolish ones, but the wise ones as well. Then at midnight, there's a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. The bridesmaids all awake suddenly with a start. In verse 8, we read that the foolish virgins say that their lamps are going out. The problem is not with, with lighting the lamps in advance because we're, we're not told that only the foolish ones did that. It seems that they all did it. The problem was that the foolish ones had not bargained on a delay. They had no backup, no plan B. In their panic, they said to the wise virgins, give us some of your oil. If, they do, if you don't, our lamps will go out. 
The answer from the, the wise virgins might seem harsh or even cruel. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. But this is not harsh or unfair. They're being sensible. If they spread their oil out around too thinly, there won't be enough for anybody, and everyone's lights might go out. The foolish virgins head out into the night with their dimly lit torches, seeing if they can find someone at this late hour to sell them some oil. But while they're still gone, the bridegroom arrives. The procession moves on without them, and the wedding banquet begins at the bridegroom's house. However, later on, the five foolish virgins get to the house. Surely now they can join in the celebration. But in verses 11 to 12, it says they cry out, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And yet the bridegroom utters these very severe words. Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. They're too late. They're shut out. Last week, Pastor Jonathan mentioned to us that some parables have an explanation of what it's going to be about at the beginning. That was true of the parable we looked at last week. Some don't have any explanation at all. We have to work it out for ourselves. This one has an explanation right at the end, where Jesus says in verse 13, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Well, let's try to translate this into the modern day. Once upon a time, there were a group of girls in Indiana who had been invited to a huge party in another state. A rich aunt had paid for them all to take a short flight from Indianapolis to the next airport in this state. When you get here, she, uh, get here, she said... Give me a call and I'll take you to the house. The girls got to uh, the Indianapolis airport in plenty of time and they're all ready to go. But the airline announced the flight has been delayed by one hour. One hour? As they waited, of course, they got bored. So they whipped out their phones to entertain themselves. Some played games on their phones. Others watched endless TikToks. Others were on Instagram. Others watched their favorite shows. And one even decided to watch a TED Talk on nuclear physics. Okay, maybe not, maybe not the last one, but the story is supposed to be realistic after all. But then another announcement. The flight was delayed by a further hour. <sighs> the frustration. More games, TikToks, Instagram shows, TED Talks on biochemical engineering, or whatever. And after yet more delays, the plane arrived, they got on board, and they were off. But, horror of horrors, there was no in-flight entertainment. <sighs> what were they thinking? You're supposed to entertain yourself? Ah, this was Spirit Airlines, of course. It was only a short flight, and uh, so they got out their phones, they um, carried on playing games. As they flew into the airport, each girl turned to the other and said, my phone battery is dying. Yeah, so is mine. Uh, Did you bring a phone charger? Um, No, it's in my checked-in luggage. (laughs) So is mine. 
They arrived at the airport, but by then the phone of each girl was dead. They couldn't call their aunt. They'd missed the party of a lifetime. They assumed that everything was going to run on their schedule. They didn't charge their phones. They couldn't talk to the person who could take them to the party. They missed out on a wonderful celebration. There'd been unexpected delays and none of them were prepared. So what can we learn from this parable? Firstly, just to paraphrase Jesus in verse 13, be alert, stay ready. Be alert, stay ready. The foolish virgins were not expecting a delay. In their minds, they knew the bridegroom was coming back at a specific time. And there was no need to plan for anything different. Let's think about the context in Matthew's Gospel. As Jonathan was saying to us last week, it's always good to see what came before the passage we're reading. So in Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44, which is just a few verses before our passage, Jesus says, keep watch because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. If you're a good thief, I don't mean a good morally pure thief, but if you're a good thief, good at your job, you don't usually let the house owner know when you're dropping by. Now maybe they do that in Greenwood, people are very pleasant in Greenwood, but, but, but that's not usually what you do. You can break in at any time. It's unexpected. That's the point Jesus is making. Then immediately, just before the parable that we read, Jesus tells another parable, another story about two kinds of people again. Here it's a faithful and sensible slave, that's one person, and another slave who is wicked. Now in that story, just before the parable of the virgins, um, the, the wicked slave assumes that the master will be delayed in coming back. So it's the opposite of the foolish virgins, who assume, of course, that there won't be a delay. So in verse 50 of Matthew 24, just before our parable, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. So in that parable, the master comes back sooner than expected. In the parable of the ten virgins, the bridegroom comes back uh, later than expected. But there is a point of no return when the end comes, whether it's early or late. Either way, since we don't know when Jesus is coming back, we need to be alert, stay ready. In fact, if we compare the two sets of virgins, the wise ones in verse 10 are described as those who were ready or those who were prepared in some translations. So what about you or me? Are we prepared? Am I expecting Jesus to come back only when I'm ready on my timetable? 
Being ready for Jesus to come back is a state of mind, is an attitude that has an impact on who we are, what we think, what we say, and what we do. Now, this doesn't mean living in a state of kind of hypervigilance, being kind of on edge and anxious all the time. Notice in verse 5 that when the bridegroom was delayed, all the virgins, all of them, became drowsy and fell asleep, not just the foolish ones. And there's no implication in the story that the, that the, uh, the wise ones are being criticized for this. It's just normal. So being ready doesn't mean uh, not getting on with the things of normal life. We all need to, re- uh, to rest, we all need to eat, we all need to work, we all need to sleep, to take care of ourselves. That's fine. But when the bridegroom returned, the wise virgins woke up from sleep and were ready. They were prepared. <clears throat> Jesus is not coming on our schedule. He's not coming when it suits us. It's not even about us. It's about him. So be alert. Stay ready. And being ready is not, uh, and being watchful is not about being passive. Just sitting back, waiting, It's not like a dog just sort of watching out of the window for his master to come back from work. It's about living a life of readiness that fits with the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked about at the start of the parable. It's about focus. It's about self-discipline. It's about not letting your eyes off the ball. So be alert. Stay ready. Now, how, in practical terms, should we do this? That brings me to the next point in the parable, number two. Bring your own oil. Bring your own oil. So remember in verse three, the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. And then when the bridegroom uh, suddenly arrived, we're told in verses seven and eight, then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. The foolish virgin's request may sound reasonable. The response of the wise virgins sounded harsh. Why couldn't they just share? Were they not Christians? But if the wise virgins had shared the oil, all the lamps would have gone out. And I think this brings out a a vital point for us spiritually. No one else can be spiritually prepared for you. You need to be ready for yourself. So let me ask you, figuratively speaking, using that word from the title of my book there. There you go. Are you relying on someone else's oil or do you have enough oil for yourself? You need to bring your own oil. What are the spiritual resources you carry with you that means that you're always ready for Jesus' return? Well, let me share about a time in my life when this really hit home for me. I spent a year living in a rural part of Kenya. Who's just come back from Kenya? We have a couple here in the house. Uh, in East Africa. I lived there when I was just 21. 
and I shared a tiny little house <coughs> with another Englishman, so I wasn't on my own, and I had another Englishman. However, this was before smartphones, this was before email. I know this is you know, hard to conceptualise. This is before the internet. In fact, we had no phones, we had no TV, we had no radio, no electricity, no running water. The church services we attended were in a tribal language that we couldn't understand. Now, I had just graduated from a university in England where I had been in leadership in a thriving student ministry with fantastic visiting Bible teachers, great worship, buzzing with lots of dynamic Christian students, prayer meetings, Bible studies, uh, lots of Christian books I could access. So here I was in Kenya just after that, and I was challenged to consider, is my relationship with Jesus dependent on having all these wonderful things? Could I survive as a Christian when all of this was stripped away? Now, of course, everything I mentioned was good and vital for our spiritual growth. We do need a church community. We do need worship, Bible teaching, small groups, all those good things. I'm not saying you shouldn't make use of them. You should. But it challenged me to consider, am I too reliant on the faith of others, on the input of others? Do I depend on being able to worship with my favorite worship group or listening to a preacher who suits my style of learning or being in a small group with people just like me, the best people? (laughs) How much of my Christian life is second hand and how much is me bringing my own oil? So what is the oil and how do I keep my lamp lit and burning? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us. I don't think we should just narrow it down to one thing. But let me mention a couple of obvious spiritual habits that we should practice. First one, very obvious. Do you read the Bible? What a ridiculous question. We're in church. But do you actually read the Bible? When I was in Kenya, the one thing I did have was my own Bible in English. But if you do, how do you read it? I saw an article recently by a college professor who teaches the Bible uh, at a a college in the States. And he was saying that um, the latest generation of students he's seeing are keen Christians. They can quote Bible verses and they love Jesus. However, they don't seem to know the big picture story of the Bible. They don't seem to know how everything fits together. They seem pretty ignorant of basic Christian beliefs. They don't seem to have a kind of biblical worldview. So he was asking himself, why is that? Oops, well, that got your attention at least. Like many of us, it seems that they only read short morning devotionals. That is, bite-sized Bible verses from different parts of the Bible on different days, with a few nice devotional thoughts by a favourite author. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but do you read the Bible for yourself, unfiltered by what someone else has to say about it? Do you read things in context so you can get the picture? When I taught on Mark's Gospel years ago at a Bible college, and I asked my students, what did you appreciate most about this course? 
they said to me it had never occurred to them to read Mark chapter 1 and then to read Mark chapter 2 and then to read Mark chapter 3 and so on. You get the idea. They suddenly realised the value of reading the whole thing and seeing how what they were reading fitted with what came before and what came next. Or imagine this. Imagine uh, receiving a letter through the mail from the great Apostle Paul and then reading the first page, throwing the next three pages away and then going to page five and continuing. Would you really understand accurately what Paul was talking about if you missed out those bits in the middle? And why would you not want to read the whole thing? But that's what a lot of us do with Paul's letters and indeed with the whole Bible. If we skip a meal or two, uh, for day of, uh, we get hungry. If we don't eat right, we become unhealthy. If we fast for days, we might lose weight. We should see the Bible the same way. We need to be feeding on solid spiritual food, on the Word of God. Now, some of us will be able to read the Bible all the way through in one year. Some of us might take six years. That doesn't matter. That's okay. What matters is we read thoughtfully, carefully, chewing over what we're reading, praying about it, asking God to give us understanding and to speak to us, applying what we're reading and taking that into our prayers as well as into our lives. Sometimes we only want to read the bits that are relevant to me. But guess what? That makes me the center of my faith, not Jesus. How about we make ourselves relevant to what we're reading? It's God's word after all. So I need to find out how God wants me uh, me to shape my life around what he says not the other way around. It's the same with prayer. Do we just pray when we feel like it? When we want something? Do we stop talking with God when we're mad? When we're sad? When we're too busy? What kind of a relationship is that? What if we treated our spouse or our mother or our father or children or friends the same way? God wants to be in relationship with us the whole time. He wants us to communicate with him. He wants to communicate with us. Whatever is happening in our lives, whether good or bad. And that's true for other practices as well. To be part of church worship, to be part of a small group, uh, to have Christian friends that you're accountable to, and all those other things. So remember... Bring your own oil. Bring your own oil. Number three, know Jesus. That's K-N-O-W, know Jesus. At the very end of this parable, in verse 13, it's almost like the voice of Jesus breaks into the story world of the parable, we might say. After the wise virgins are let into the wedding banquet, Uh, It reads in verses 11 and 12, Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Now, the original readers or the original hearers, since most 
uh, people in Jesus' day would, have, uh, would just be listening to this. If they were reading Matthew's gospel all the way through, or if we were to do that today, you'd have heard an echo from earlier in the gospel, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Many, Jesus is speaking here, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, notice the same words, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now how about that? Even speaking Words of prophecy in the name of Jesus, doing mighty miracles, casting out demons. It's not the main thing. So what is the main thing? It's knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. When Jesus says, I do not know you, it's a warning that our relationship with him can be second hand. Now, I just mentioned the importance of praying, of being together with other believers, of worshipping, of reading the Bible, but none of that means anything if we don't know Jesus. There may be someone here today who knows all about Jesus, but doesn't have a relationship with Jesus that is real and personal. There may be someone today who has never committed their life to following Jesus, to trusting in him, to submitting to him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus says, don't put it off. Don't leave it too late. Don't wait until the door closes and you're shut out of the wedding. Fairly soon we're going to open up the the altar here for people to come forward to pray And this is your opportunity, if that's you, to come forward and to pray to commit yourself to him. But many in this room will say, like me, me, I'm a believer. I know Jesus. So this doesn't apply to me. Well, most of us have made a commitment to follow Jesus at some point in the past. But what about today? Today? Is Jesus really Lord of your life today? Many of us have heard the phrase salvation by faith to describe what it means to be a Christian. Saved by faith. Now, faith is more than just believing something to be true. We've heard this before from the front here that James chapter 2 verse 19 tells us that even the demons believe in God, but they are clearly not followers of Jesus. A Bible professor called Matthew Bates has written a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Salvation by Allegiance Alone. He says that faith could be better translated allegiance. Allegiance means loyalty or devotion. It's what you give to a king or to the commander of an army. It says, I submit completely and unreservedly to follow your orders, to go wherever you send me, to do whatever you tell me. That's what it means to know Jesus. Maybe you believe in Jesus and you trusted him many years ago. But to truly know him, you and I need to give complete allegiance 
to Jesus as our master, our Lord, and our King. That means total surrender to the will of God in my life. Total surrender to walking with Jesus, to laying everything down upon the altar, to giving up my rights, my plans, my wants, and asking him, what do you want me to do and to be? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me uh, to change? So when we do what Paul describes, the Apostle Paul describes in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 1, where he talks about the picture, the image of laying all our lives down on the altar as a living sacrifice. We're saying we're giving all of ourselves to him. When we do that, that enables God, if you like, to give all of himself to us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to empower us by his spirit. So let's make sure that we truly know Jesus. Number four, look forward to the bridegroom. Look forward to the bridegroom. This is not a point that is actually drawn out in the passage. I wouldn't say it's the main point, but I do think it's significant. Let's not forget in this parable that the one we're waiting for is a bridegroom. We have other similar parables where it's about servants or slaves waiting for their master to come back. We have one parable that's about subjects waiting for the return of the king. In uh, Luke's gospel even has a mini parable, we might say, a kind of parable type saying uh, about keeping your lamps burning. But there it's the master that we're expecting, whereas here it's the bridegroom. Jesus chose specifically to use a different image in this parable to emphasize something. The one we're waiting for is not a harsh teacher who is wanting to give you a bad grade for failing a test. He's not a mean sports coach who wants to make you run laps around the field because he's not pleased with your performance. He's not a traffic cop waiting to catch you out. Always obey the law. He's a bridegroom. He's a bridegroom. Now, why would this be significant to the readers or the listeners? So apart from what they would see in their own culture, in the Old Testament especially, we're told that God, God is compared to a bridegroom on many occasions, a bridegroom to his people. There's actually lots of examples. I'm just going to give you a few here. So Isaiah 54 verse 5, uh, that's Isaiah, not Isaiah. It's the same, it's the same thing. Uh, says to God's people, for your maker is your husband. Or Isaiah 62 verse 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In Hosea, uh, Hosea chapter 2 verse 16, God says to his people, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And then a few verses later, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. If we think about the, the New Testament, so in the Old Testament, we've had God compared to a bridegroom. 
But surprise, surprise, in the New Testament, Jesus compares himself to a bridegroom. He does that in Matthew 9, verse 15. So same gospel, a little bit earlier. And then in John's gospel, this is what John the Baptist says about Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 9. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. So the coming of the bridegroom is actually a joyful occasion, something we look forward to. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5, compares the union of Christ and his church to the union of husband and wife. So in that picture, we are the bride, we the church, Christ is the bridegroom. It speaks of of, uh, Jesus' incredible love and compassion and commitment to us. And then in the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, which is looking forward to, you might say, a final picture of the coming of a new heavens and a new earth, it talks about a marriage, the image of a marriage between the Lamb, referring to Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his bride, referring to his church. In chapter 21, verse 2, uh, John, this is John uh, on the island of Patmos, who has his vision. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then in Matthew 22, verse 2, same gospel, It compares um, the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. So as we think about this parable, the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's coming back for his bride. That's the church. That's you and me. We are being invited to a fantastic wedding banquet. It's going to be a time of joy and celebration, greater than any party we could imagine on this earth. So why wouldn't you want to be ready and prepared? Let's not miss out. So as I close today, remember this. Be alert. Stay ready. Bring your own oil. Know Jesus. And look forward to the bridegroom. Let's just be still now. In an attitude of prayer, let's bow our heads. Thanks for joining us for worship today. I'm John Collier, and I hope today has inspired you to love God and to love others more. We always want to take some time at the end to pray for you, especially if this is the first time of believing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our sins. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross and raise again so that he can be king and we don't have to be. Help us to learn more about you so we can live more like you. (laughs) We want you to connect with us and we want to connect with you. You can comment down below or go to diversitychurch.net and we'll see you again next week.